Welcome to Disrupted Asia, Navigating the Global Order of Tomorrow, a podcast series by FES in Asia, where Asia's and Europe's leading experts tackle some of the more pressing questions around the changing geopolitical environment and how this is shaping the global order of tomorrow. In this episode, we discuss how artificial intelligence and emerging technologies are shifting the balance of power in the face of the new emerging geopolitical and geoeconomic realities. To discuss these issues with us is Ms. Alina Noor. She is the Director of Political Security Affairs at the Asia Society Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. Previously, Alina was Director for Foreign Policy and Security Studies at the Institute of Strategic and International Studies in Malaysia. She currently serves on the ICRC's Global Advisory Board on Digital Threats During Conflict. Welcome to our podcast, Disrupted Asia. I'm Din Kim Sailu. And today we are delighted to have with us Ms. Elena Noor. Elena, welcome to our podcast. Thank you so much for having me. As the US-China rivalry intensifies in the wake of COVID-19, leadership in AI and technology is also becoming a major battleground. What conventional assumptions about the future of politics within and across national boundaries are being challenged by this? How do you see this being played out in the context of this rivalry? but also per se, what are the implications of uh, this for the Indo-Pacific region? Thank you, Dimkin. Those are huge questions. So let me try to offer my best responses to them. One of the things this pandemic has really brought home to us over the past year and a half is how important technology has become to our daily lives. And as a result, the geopolitics surrounding leadership of technology has also intensified. And we've seen this play out in a number of arenas, such as supply chain, uh, logistics, also cyber governance, and the topic of our discussion today, AI. You have countries like um, China, before the start of the pandemic, had already decided that it would really like to be a leader in AI by 2030. And so it set out this very considered strategic plan to achieve that goal. In response, I think the US has also really ramped up its ambitions to continue being a leader, not just in AI, but also in technology writ large. And as a result of this competition, what you have now is a rivalry in many of those sub-areas, for example, standards uh, in international organizations, leadership of those international standards organizations, and an um, influence campaign, if you will, to try to convince the rest of the world which system might be more beneficial for them. And for us in Asia, there is even more of this sense of being boxed in into this geotechnological competition. We have so much enthusiasm and optimism for all things digital that it's hard to distinguish that and dissect it from the geopolitical side of things. And so increasingly, although there is a lot of excitement um, economically, for the promises of AI and technology, we are also having to grapple with some of these political implications, um, 
particularly since many of the supply chains come from our part of the world. You mentioned cyber. Technology is already shaping wars and the arms race is moving to the cyberspace. Although the volume of traditional weapons uh, possessed by each country continue to be more obvious, there is a far less clarity on who is developing tools for use in this space in cyber warfare. Should states prepare themselves for cyber war as a legitimate security threat in the future? Will the next big war take place in the cyberspace? Yeah, let me maybe push back a little on this lack of clarity about who is developing cyber weapons. It's quite clear from various reports that the number of states that have declared cyber offensive capabilities now number into the tens, uh, somewhere between 30 plus to 60 plus. And there are states that have come out very explicitly about these capabilities on the justification that it promotes greater transparency. Then we can have a more frank discussion about what types of governance systems should regulate these capabilities. I think that what we will continue to see is more of a hybrid version of warfare playing out. And this hybrid version will comprise both kinetic capabilities as well as what goes on in cyberspace. And so you'll have perhaps command and control systems being coordinated in cyberspace to deploy more kinetic weapons. And that's already taking place now. AI's impact on how these weapons uh, will play out is also being debated. What is the impact of AI on cyber, for example? If everything is going to be automated, what sorts of complications will that pose to international law as we know it? What rules of warfare, laws of warfare will continue to apply or not um, as these instances of warfare play out both in, in both realms? And so you have this interplay of warfare and what some call lawfare that is being hotly discussed right now. Let me push a little bit more on this, on the hard arms race, so to say. Um, we saw that uh, ASEAN held a cybersecurity summit in 2018. Singapore's launched ASEAN Singapore Cybersecurity Center uh, in 2019. And there seems to be some effort around limiting the cyber arms race uh, akin to what we saw uh, ar around the nuclear space, so to say. Is there a need for such initiative on a global space? And ultimately, how will this space look like? How will the management of such risks uh, look like over uh, in the digital space itself, as well as uh, in the non-digital mechanisms? Some of that discussion is already being seriously debated at the UN level. And for those in your audience who might be aware of and knowledgeable of these UN processes, there are right now two parallel processes taking place uh, regarding the governance of state responsibility in cyberspace. And these processes are known as the group of governmental experts and the open-ended working group. They were sponsored by different countries, uh, the GGE, by the US, 
the OEWG, as it's known by its acronym, by Russia. And initially, there was some concern that these two parallel processes, because of the state sponsoring them, would be competitive processes. But what has turned out, actually, and, and the OEWG recently wrapped up its work, the GGE um, has also recently released its report, because of the leadership of both these processes and the very deliberate efforts to work together and to synchronize their work, these processes have ended up being complementary rather than competitive. And I think that's very promising of what might be possible in the technological and geopolitical realms. The 2018 meetings concerning cybersecurity in ASEAN um, as you rightly pointed out, was initiated and, and hosted by Singapore as ASEAN chair. And that was in part a response to these developments taking place at the international level at the UN. There was a lot of talk about what sort of norms would help shape the regulatory environment of state responsibility in cyberspace. There is also, and continues till today, a lot of debate about international law and its place in cyberspace. And for ASEAN to be left out of that conversation, I think as recognized by the ASEAN chair that year, would have been detrimental for the region's hopes for its place uh, in the digital realm. Particularly since a lot of plans, strategies and initiatives in ASEAN are anchored in the digital space. You know, you have things like the ASEAN Master Plan on connectivity, the Smart Cities Network. There are so many hopes in ASEAN being pinned on digitalization that there was a recognition that if Southeast Asian countries don't help to shape some of these norms and conversations, then ASEAN countries will continue to be users, if you will, of technology, but not actual contributors to its regulatory and governance frameworks. That's a good segue for us to delve a little bit deeper on this governance, which seems to be the linchpin of where uh, we may be going. It is imperative to find governance solutions that minimize negative impacts of AI, while simultaneously making sure we as a society keep the benefit of uh, AI development in the last few years, we have also seen more and more stakeholders engaging in efforts to address some of the issues related to this governance, as you have already highlighted uh, many of the undercurrents that are unbeknownst to many of us. Yet the level of engagement and capacity still differs hugely between countries. So since many nations depend on yesterday's economic models, how will this AI and new technology play a role in creating these new growth models, which are also creating uh, different versions of aspirational uh, development paths, uh, especially here in Asia. That's a really good point that you've brought up, Dimkin. Um, trying to operate in a new space or evolving space with old models is perhaps a really good encapsulation of what's taking place, particularly in Southeast Asia. And as you pointed out, there are differences in digital capacity and capabilities. 
And that's something that many countries are trying to help address in Southeast Asia. So capacity building is a hot word. It's, it's the buzzword of the day right now uh, in many of the discussions surrounding cyberspace and norms development. Because while perhaps technical expertise can be supported and trained a little more easily than, say, capacity building in the policy and legal arenas, there is this recognition that those two latter areas are something that many states in the region need to start considering more seriously. Because again, if Southeast Asia and Asia writ large is to be a part of this conversation, this unfolding conversation on norms and international law and how states are expected to behave, then the policies and legal frameworks should be in place adequately in these countries, in their domestic jurisdictions. One of the issues that I feel is being underconsidered in the region um, and that is beginning to take greater prominence in Western countries like the United States concerns the issue of ethics in AI. And what this means is not only issues of transparency and accountability in how some of these algorithms are being formulated, but also the larger picture of social justice in technology. And there are conversations about bias and racial discrimination that are beginning to be discussed uh, in Western societies. But as you know, in our very diverse countries in Asia, these are conversations also that have long been very prickly, even prior to the digital space, but that must now be rehashed uh, in light of technological developments. So for example, will minority communities and their dialects or languages that they speak be adequately represented in the AI technologies deployed to or exported to countries in Asia? Will facial recognition technology aided by machine learning sufficiently take into account the differences in features in even one country, right? So in a country like Myanmar with 135 officially recognized different ethnicities, or in a state in Malaysia that alone has about 30 plus dialects, will each of these communities have an equal or equitable stake in the development of AI? Many countries in the region are still importers of technology. And I think there is this a valid question of whether the technologies that are being formulated um, and designed in many in Western countries will be representative of the realities on the ground in each of these Asian countries. So while in many of these countries in Asia, this conversation around the inequity around the discriminatory side of AI has uh, not taken a pace. Uh, there are some other countries uh, which are already on to building uh, strategies. Even the EU has built a strategy around AI. Does this mean that uh, the regulatory powerhouse and therefore the power around uh, AI and technology will lay with those who can regulate it? Does it mean uh, the West in this case? Uh, 
enlighten us. Yeah, those are, again, Dimkin, you're asking all these difficult questions. It's true that in the West, there is a head start on some of these very important uh, social implications of AI and, and other technologies. There are countries in Asia that are trying to keep pace and are at least aware of these conversations that need to take place. So Singapore, for example, has debated some of these questions on ethics and AI. Um, they have experts on it convening to further deliberate these issues. There are other countries in Southeast Asia, such as Vietnam and Indonesia, which have AI strategies and that are beginning to think about some of these ethical implications of AI. But there needs to be a much deeper conversation given our specificities and very unique contexts of each country uh, in Southeast Asia, let alone the rest of Asia. So I think there should be uh, a recognition um, by the governments of these countries that the national conversations need to take place based on the unique particularities of each society, and then perhaps have a regional conversation about how positions can be consolidated uh, in perhaps a similar way that the EU has done. Of course, there are going to be differences, and it may turn out that Asia will take a completely different route, but there are some very good lessons, I think, that are out there and that are still evolving that Asia can draw from uh, Europe or the US. Because as I mentioned, these conversations are still unfolding and there is a lot to be learned. And one of the key lessons that we in Asia can take is that there shouldn't be a copy and paste model of frameworks from abroad. Uh, the appeal is always there. Certainly the convenience is there. But we in Asia have to think through these questions very, very carefully because the frameworks that we lay out will basically guide us for the next two or three, five decades on. What will a multilateral approach to framing this look like in an ideal situation? In an ideal situation, we would all work together to figure out how AI and other technologies should serve us in the best way possible. And there are ongoing efforts at global cooperation, you have networks like a partnership for AI, and you have these UN conversations that are taking place. Inevitably, there will be differences in opinion, but I think a cooperative rather than a competitive framework, as we've learned from the pandemic, will be best suited for the international community. Um, there is always, I guess, this yearning to be the best, uh, particularly among the major powers in an evolving field. But I think, again, as the pandemic has shown us, multilateral, multi-stakeholder cooperation still remains the best way forward, rather than a rivalry that aims to split the world into different factions. Finally, what in your view is a best case scenario of the use of AI to technology in creating a positive uh, impact on the security structure amidst what uh, many analysts say is a disruptive century uh, due to the rise of China. So I think the solution lies outside of the security fields if we're looking at this topically. Areas like health, education, these are non-controversial areas or should be at least um, that offer opportunities for cooperation 
among different countries on how technology can be used to enhance the lives of people. Uh, unfortunately, we've seen that even some of these non-controversial areas can end up being controversial. And so I think this is where the agency of even smaller countries matters very greatly. Um, again, I keep referring to the global pandemic as an example, but during the pandemic, you saw smaller countries really engaging with the international community and taking ownership in how global public health should play out in the absence of leadership by major powers. And if we were to use that lesson and apply it to the technological realm, I think there's a real opportunity for smaller countries to realize their potential and capabilities and provide thought leadership even when there are limited digital capabilities on the ground. Smaller countries can still contribute um, through legal debates, through political initiatives, basically ideas leadership. And if we were to work together on some of these non-security issues, then perhaps we can create an environment that promotes greater stability and security in the more conventional sense. Uh, and thus, avoiding this whole rivalry trap that many of us want to um, ensure. Well, Lina, you have distilled a very complex and in all matters, a very futuristic uh, subject into pieces and ways in which uh, is understandable. This has been hugely insightful, enlightening, and thank you very much. Thank you, Dimkin, for your provocative questions and for forcing me to think a little more clearly about these issues. This was Alina Noor, Director of Political Security Affairs at the Asia Society Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. This podcast was brought to you by FES in Asia. Interview by Dimkin Silo. Research by Mekla Jar. Directed by Mirkor Gunter. And produced by MediaWalk. Make sure to subscribe, tell your friends about it, and don't forget to visit our website, asia.fes.de, for regular updates on freedom, justice, and solidarity in Asia. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.